0: All right, we'll get started. Um, Thank you, my name is uh, Ted Horton. I'm a partner in the capital markets uh, group of Seward and Kissel's Maritime Transportation Group. I'm based in New York. Um, It's an honor today to host this panel on uh, shipping capital markets. Um, While I think today's panelists, unfortunately, can't change the realities that we're facing in this market, they certainly know it um, better or as well as anyone else in the industry. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to do the introductions rather than um, go down the panel. Starting to um, my left is uh, Herman Hilden. He's a managing director of investment banking and shipping at Clarkson's Plateau Securities, um, with global equity coverage of the shipping industry. Uh, and together with him, his team, covers uh, 35 companies in the tanker, dry bulb, container, LNG, car carry, LPG, and chemical sector. So I guess you could say all aspects of the shipping industry. Um, To his left is Wiley Griffiths, managing director at Morgan Stanley's Global Transportation Group based in New York. Uh, Wiley has clients throughout the shipping and transportation industries and has completed a number of the well-known shipping company IPOs um, as well as a number of M&A transactions in the uh, shipping industry. Closer. Uh, To Wiley's left um, is George Giannakis. He is a managing director uh, heading the Real Assets platform of Storm Harbor Securities, focusing on the firm's shipping and real estate practice. Uh, he is based in London, and he his exper- has extensive experience in restructuring and executing uh, private equity transactions in the shipping, both for publicly listed and private companies, as well as the placement of various uh, shipping company debt instruments, again, both in the public and the private markets. Um, and finally, to his left, and thank you for coming in at the last minute, um, is Krista Wopicelli. Uh, she is a Managing Director in Citigroup's Global Transportations Groups, where she leads Citi's U.S. shipping and investment banking practice. She focuses on providing uh, M&A and capital raising and financial advisory services across all areas of the maritime uh, sectors and has structured and led numerous um, shipping company uh, public offerings. Subsequent equity offerings um, and also has served as structuring agent for numerous maritime uh, MLPs Um, So I will start I was having uh, At my table last night was an investment banker who's not sitting at this panel today and was asking me what panel I was moderating when I told him what I was doing his answer was what capital markets, so I'm hoping that Um, That's a little bit of a a dire forecast for where we are, but there's no question that the shipping capital markets um, obviously face challenges. Um, Despite some pockets of optimism last year, um, we're going into our fourth year of no uh, new shipping or no shipping company IPOs um, in the U.S. markets. Um, And despite some relatively strong results last year in certain sectors, um, as well as uh, some promising fundamentals in shipping in terms of just the supply and demand, order book um, outlook. There was the, the majority of shipping companies in the U.S. I think it's fair to say, including those that reported strong earnings, continued to trade at a discount, some at a significant discount uh, to to NAV. Um, so with that, um, with that outlook, um, and I just wanted to know where we're, I'm talking primarily about the U.S. markets. I do hope that we'll have some time to talk about other markets particularly Oslo, um, which you know it 's been a little bit different in some respects and the same in some respects um, I 'll save some time for that in the panel um, I think I'd like to start with just a very broad question uh, to the panel which is simply you know what what do you think that we need to to see happen um, in the market in order for the capital markets to open to shipping companies and I guess I would sort of direct that both towards the general markets, shipping and the, and the broader capital markets, as well as the individual um, entities in, in particular, what, what investors are going to be looking for or, or not looking for. Um, I'll start, well, I mean, we'll start with you. Sure.
1: so um, you, ah, there we go. So, uh, Ted mentioned that we saw some good results from shipping companies last year, and I think relative to some prior years, we did see some encouraging signs. Um, you know, we uh, were the lead book runner on the good bulk transaction, which ultimately failed as an IPO, uh, but those, you know, it succeeds as a company and continues to kind of thrive in its industry. And I think the takeaway was, and, and I, among others, um, you know, misjudged this, was there was really a lack of... Um, in fundamental equity investor interest among, um, you know, typical institutional investors. And, and when asked the question, um, you know, we think this is a good risk-reward opportunity, do you want to buy? The answer was, I don't need to buy this right now. Now, it was kind of the beginning of the trade war um, saga. Um, we had to convince investors that dry bulk was insulated from that, um, but we also felt like it was gonna be a supply-driven recovery. It felt like a really good risk-reward trade-off. And the response we got was, this sounds really interesting, but you know, come back to me when you have a couple of quarters of good earnings and this thesis has proven out more. Um, so you're coming to me too early because um, I don't need to own this right now. And I think a combination of that mentality, which is I'd rather invest when things have, I'd rather miss some of the good stuff to see this fundamental thesis play out that invest too early based on what's happened and the fact that they were really kind of portfolio triaging a little bit around the beginning of, you know, the severe volatility of of 2018 in the markets um, kind of led us to that result. And so um, I think that was a great case study in kind of figuring out what needs to happen. And I think what needs to happen is just fundamental earnings, cash flow, and performance in the business for a sustained period of time to attract
0: investment. Krista, maybe I'll go down to you on your thoughts on that.
2: Um, yes, I, I agree with Wiley's comments in terms of how we view the world and our team at City. I think that you know, the reality is if you go back for the last three, four years, investors have lost a lot of money in shipping. And if you time it right and have invested at certain points in the cycle, you you maybe made some money. But overall, investors and new offerings have lost a lot of money. And so what has to change is we have to have an environment where companies are earning positive um, earnings again. I think, you know, as Wiley talked about, the IPO markets, I think the other element that we're just facing is the continued challenges with respect to size of companies. And the reality is we have a lot of listed companies today in the public markets. We've seen consolidation happening and and changing some of that. But the reality is investors have a lot of different alternatives in terms of ways to invest. If they want to invest in dry bulk, they can pick one of 12 companies. Same thing with tankers. A little bit less so in other sectors and so when an investor is faced with a new opportunity the question becomes okay this sounds great but if i have a choice between a company that is smaller and the fundamentals may look great or one of the larger more liquid stocks in the space and i want to take a bet on a sector i might be better off investing in the larger more liquid stock because i can get out more quickly Um, because history has shown that investors can get stuck in terms of their investments and their ability to get out when they want to get out. And so what we have heard time and time again is we've had discussions with investors, either in a non-deal roadshow context over the last 12 months or in situations where we're trying to raise capital, is just that um, that, that continuous feedback with respect to size and concerns.
3: I think uh, it's fair to say that the trade war obviously was a curveball in terms of the momentum last year. And as one investor told me when I met him in New York last week, you know, when global growth is slowing down, shipping is a bet on on global growth. And when global growth is slowing down, you know, if you make an investment with that backdrop, that's good enough to basically get fired. Uh, I think when when it comes to the processes last year, obviously, uh, you know, good bulk was mentioned. Uh, I would say that also one factor that played a role there was uh, a top left uh, doing a competing deal the night before we were going to price didn't help either. Uh, But looking forward, I think it's fair to say investors at the end of the day are very focused on on making money. That's really the bottom line. And I think we raised capital for an OTC company, a drivable company in Norway after the summer last year, September, small liquid company. But a company with a track record of paying, uh, generating lots of cash and also paying that cash out to shareholders. So uh, I think all in all, definitely the general sentiment in in shipping today is obviously quite challenging. And I think the the fact that half the room left when we started the capital markets panel is a good kind of (laughs) way to show that. Uh, In terms of going forward, I think, you know, I'm strange in the way that the cheaper things get, the more excited I get and, uh, the and, and if you look at the setup for the shipping uh, outlook now with record order books and so on and so forth, and a possible solution on a tr- uh, China-US uh, trade war, that could flip things completely upside down. So at Clarkson's, I mean, we we have always been in shipping and we will always be in shipping regardless of where we are in the cycle. And I think, uh, you know, as the Roman philosopher said, uh, luck is where uh, opportunity meets preparations. And and we're doing a lot of preparations now. And and, uh, we think that uh, over the next, uh, call it couple of quarters, things are going to look very different than what they do right now.
0: George, do you have any thoughts on what we need to see? I
4: think that, um, uh, does it work, So I think that the the, um, the the new listings they have actually two main enemies. One is uh, the existing stocks, as, as Chris was saying correctly, is uh, they have uh, uh, they at that uh, very large discounts to uh, to NAV. So why necessarily go on uh, on a new on a new player that uh, people don't know when you can buy something that uh, is over a significant uh, discount? And the second, which I think is an even bigger one, it's actually liquidity. So how do you get out? Uh, s- still, even today the uh, uh, the paper sorry yeah, the stocks uh, they tend to have even potentially lower liquidity than the steel if you want to invest you know a given size if you want to invest five million then it's fine you can get out but if you want to invest 20 30 40 million it's actually very difficult to monetize the uh, uh, the position and the profit when you want to monetize it while still on uh, on when you want to sell the vessel on larger size it will be it will be zero that's why I still I think private equities the end. Uh, sort of non-public uh, solutions uh, of raising capital for companies, uh, they still have uh, a significant, uh, significant momentum uh, on the equity side, and the private equity side specifically.
0: In addition, obviously, is to, to the size and liquidity that we hear, the other issue that comes a lot is, is corporate governance issues. I think for for the IPO, you know, aspiring new public companies, is, is the corporate governance that may have attracted investors in the last cycle, is that going to work again or does it really need to be clean in terms of related party transactions and inside management or is there still some room for
3: that
1: yeah i mean i think uh i would argue that the last few you know kind of attempts here have had pretty clean structures like good bulk for example um, although it had management arrangements with affiliates it also had carval as a shareholder who wasn't an owner of that manager and so they had you know, done their diligence on whether that was fair to them as the economic interest in the actual shipping company. So, you know, that's a, I think, you know, Chris has done this for a long time as well. I think, you know, that getting through committee at a bank and, you know, Morton has underlined the economic incentive we all have to get deals done, that's high um, regardless of what the spread is. And so, um, and the probability of success is low given the bar we've all been talking about. So um, I think the new standard was set a little while ago and absolutely has to be maintained um, going forward. But I, I would say that relative to you know just doing follow-ons four or five years ago, that would be kind of question number one. I think it's now in the investor consciousness a little more assumed that you've got that house in order um, and it's more of a check the box.
0: So it's sort of taken for granted. Yeah. It's going to be there um I mean staying on the on the, the the stock prices and and where where the existing companies are trading w- one of the things we were talking about is that some of these companies are sitting on cash positions um, from from last year um, where rates may have come down a little bit or more than a little bit in some sectors of the beginning of the year, but at least during eighteen. so there's an awful lot of these balance sheet transactions, whether it was dividends or or buybacks um, or in some cases soft tenders had seemed to have minimal effect on on stock price. I guess given sort of the cost of doing that, which is obviously reducing cash reserves for unknown future, um, reducing liquidity in in a market that I think there's already criticism of, of too little liquidity to start with. What was that, it, it, do you think from your view, is that the right decision for those companies to try to pursue that to the extent of either just buying it back at the right prices or that together with or separately? is just to support the stock price? Or at this point, is it better just to I'm, ha- I'm happy
2: to start with that question. I think that as you think about share buybacks in this sector for public companies, I think that if you have a company that has a good trading, good cash balance position, good capital structure, and you have a stock that is trading well below net asset value, as a capital allocation policy, buying back your shares can make sense over the longer term. However, the reality is, if you are a company that is less than $500 million of market cap, I, we don't believe that you will see an instant reaction to your share price. And the fact that you are taking trading liquidity out you know, does have some slight negative impact. However... Um, As we're talking about investors being focused on liquidity, most of the companies, the magnitude of their buybacks is not to a degree that's going to move that massively. So I think that if you're doing a share buyback, it has to make sense over the long term, right? Over the long term, by reducing your shares outstanding in an opportunistic time makes all the sense in the world as long as you're not jeopardizing the cash position of the company. The other advice that we often talk about with companies in this sector is companies in shipping oftentimes may run their capital structures with a higher cash balance than you would otherwise and the reason is because in this sector because it's so cyclical and because access to the capital markets has proven so cyclical you want to take cash when you have it because the times that you need it it may not the markets may not be there for you to raise it so you'll see many companies operate and the companies that have weathered the storms the best have oftentimes operated with a slightly higher cash balance than normal. So I think that the share buyback decision has to be made in that context of, do you feel you have a capital structure that you can withstand, um, You know, perhaps an environment that you don't expect? And is it a good, good decision over the long term? Because over the short term, it may not truly benefit your share price, uh, but it, it really has to be made in a long-term view, in our opinion.
0: Does anyone else have thoughts on that? It also has
4: to do with uh, what, what other projects you can use your cash for, um, especially in some sectors uh, over the last you know, 18 months hasn't been very easy to find good ways to deploy your capital in growing your fleet uh, um, uh, and doing, doing other things with your money, right? So uh, you don't want to pay your debt uh, necessarily too aggressively because you need to have a you know, relatively optimal level of, uh, of capital structure. Uh, so it, it, it does make sense also from you know, from from what other opportunities you have. The other thing is that the majority of the companies are extremely skeptical now to do new build orders because uh, that has been proven unsuccessful, let's say, in the long run, for lack of uh, for lack of better word. So share buybacks is also an option of last resort as well. Not just necessarily when you put your options down, you might end up there without starting from there necessarily.
0: So it's not the right time in the cycle to get back into.
2: Sure. It depends that, on what that, opportunity what you will find, right? It,
4: it might be, in theory, a yeah. very, uh, very good very very good, good timing, but you need to find the asset and the opportunity to actually deploy.
0: Did you want to say something, William? I,
1: I, w- I would just add, I mean, it's Chris's point about size of companies, it's kind of the law of small numbers. I think, you know, when people think share buybacks, it's good corporate finance practice, if that's your best investment opportunity. Um, But if you have a cash balance, you announce a program, you've got a small cash balance, investors know there's no teeth behind the the program. It has to be credible as
0: well. Um, I guess one of the, we've made the comment, there's a lot of publicly listed companies out there. There's a lot of the, in the IPOs, is that one of the issues are there's just, there's enough other opportunities to put money into. I guess the question is, if there are enough publicly listed companies, does the direct listing route, which we're seeing a number of companies sort of pursuing, and I think the the main reason for that is that they get some, at least in the U.S., they get some benefits to be a first mover to the extent that they're a public company for a year and they get trading, Um, but obviously the costs of being a public company. Is that, hypothetically, if someone were to come to you and not be able to go, a new company, not be able to go into the public markets, do you think that's the right move today to do, is to pursue that, or is it just wait for more traditional public, you know, an IPO through the more traditional one time route.
3: I think the point about being listed is to be able to raise capital and when the capital market is closed or I mean it's not closed, but it's very expensive. You know why do you want to force yourself into a platform which kind of is in effect kind of closed. So I don't see the the point about going public just to to go public. I mean it has to be because you have something to do in the public markets. So that's at least my opinion. I'm not sure if. Do you have any other opinions?
1: I mean, at my instincts are with with Herman. I mean, you, you, can, um, you could argue that it gives you a faster path because there is a fair amount of documentation, et cetera. But I think you have to have visibility about how long that lead time is to ultimately accessing the capital markets because you could, you know, there's a more philosophical argument about being public or not as a shipping company given its inherent cyclicality. Um, you certainly want to know that you're getting an attractively priced cost of capital through your public equity. In this case, at some point in the near to medium term future, if you're going to start paying, you know, um, auditors, bankers, lawyers, et cetera, fees to be public. So, um, it's there, there's a there's a timing and an optionality component, but um, ultimately, you know, you're, you're public based on, um, you know, the reasons traditionally for for being public.
2: I, I agree with both of the panelists. I think that um, oftentimes I've also heard the question of, well, a direct listing, it's, it's quicker to market, it's lower fees, and maybe I don't need the capital anyway, so it allows me to get a listing. But the other element here is that, you know, one thing that an IPO allows in terms of the overall process is the IPO is really the initial branding of a company in the public markets. And so what we help do as bankers is we help place that stock in the hands of investors. We give them an opportunity to buy in in meaningful size. Um, And particularly for this sector, that's critically important because if trading liquidity is low, many investors who want to invest can't accumulate a position that's meaningful enough for their funds just by buying in the open market. So the IPO is not just about raising capital, it's about having a currency you can use, having a valuation that for the future sets yourself up, but it's about establishing that initial shareholder base in a way that you know, helps round out all of these things. And you know, what you will see when you analyze the valuations of some of the companies that have gone this route is they do tend to trade at bigger discounts to their peer sets. Because of this lack of liquidity and lack of following, and investors haven't been able to accumulate this, so it takes a longer time to work out of that, as Wiley said, and it, it can be an uphill battle. That said, you have a listing; it just becomes a question of the length of time that it takes for you to get those those benefits.
3: Yeah,
1: I mean, just said said differently, but Krista's point is is the main one, which is uh, your introduction to the you know to the in this case, U.S. capital markets or Oslo or what have you, is your capital raise. That's where investors make a a proactive choice to own your stock. Um, So the technical listing is a a facilitation to get ready for that process. But you can call yourself public by being directly listed. But you're, you know, in, in I think an effective way, you're not really public until you do your first offering, your first primary raise.
3: That, that being said though, I think it, it kind of makes sense if you want, if you do a direct listing just to kind of start to create, to build a track record. Uh, at least my uh, opinion is that over time it's the kind of the actions over time and the reputation and the track record that uh, will d- dictate your relative pricing and then over, obviously the market is what the market is. So kind of doing a direct listing with the purpose of building up a track record it might actually be you know not so bad after all so I think it's like every situation has a different answer depending on where you're coming from so it's a very you know it's it's a very general uh, question in that sense right
0: but is that true of the track record yeah. is not the track record you want I mean isn't that we're hearing that some of these ones that have gone the listing route they haven't they haven't traded very well they haven't had a lot of liquidity, and the pricing may not be where they want so is that is that going to be notwithstanding that you may have some regulatory advantages when you're ready to go do a public capital raise could that listing actually be a detriment to the IPO
2: process, or is it uh... – I'm not sure if anyone well, – I, I was – is this working? Um, actually, when you were talking about track record, I, I assumed you were commenting on the track record of the company performing. Okay. Right? The equity markets will do what the equity markets will do. And and so I, I, I agree. As, as a public company, you're in the spotlight, you're reporting – and if you are able to be delivering consistently to investors, you will start to gradually build that name for yourself. So the fact that your stock price may react a certain way because of a, the poor liquidity is one thing. Uh, and that's just a reality that management teams have to deal with and navigate if they go this route. Um, and so again, that's why I take the view that it, it can take a longer time to get recognized for a positive track record. Uh, but certainly, I think it can accrue to your benefit if you're able to wait that period of time.
4: It's also the fact that when you uh, when you are listed, uh, the track record, there is one thing which is the equity or the listing and the trading track record, but this opens you other avenues of capital as well. It's far easier to raise capital from a bank or from shipping lending fund, depends what you want to, to do in terms of LTV and how aggressive you want to be. but. People just automatically are 10 times uh, more open to listen to you when you're a listed listed company compared to when you're a private company of uh, even 100 million of uh, or even 200 million or 300 million of of net worth. So it has also other collateral benefits uh, which can help you grow, uh, not necessarily with the equity market which might not be there for a given period of time, you're always ready to the trigger but at the same at the same time allows you to access other type of capital in a far easier way and i think a cheaper way uh, as well just before because you're you know properly audited probably monitored uh, and you're in the spotlight as Krista uh, as said
0: um i want to move off a little bit and, and herman i'll just start with you i mean so we've been talking about the u.s markets o- oslo obviously did have you know in 2008 it was a good year um, particularly in the in the debt side um, there were some notable raises there, as well as some of the equity sides. I think that those on the debt side, those have slowed down a little bit towards the end of the year. Um, I guess, from your perspective, is there you know, what, what people hear about the Oslo market is it's quicker to market, there's less documentation, is there less covenants on the debt side? Is there something else that you think that sort of differentiates that from the U.S. market, or or why some companies were able to come in there, given the fact that I think it's I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I think that the liquidity. Trading there is still not what it is in New York. That's pretty well accepted, but a lot of companies still chose to go there. Maybe where where do you see that going in in 19? Uh,
3: I mean, I think, as you correctly said, the Norwegian market is a good, great market to have uh, growth uh, because of the documentation being faster and so on. Uh, The bottom line in the U.S., that's the deepest and most efficient market you have in the world. So I think it kind of depends very much on what position your company is in. Uh, you also have companies listed in both uh, New York and, and Oslo, like Starbuck, for example, GoldenOcean, uh, Frontline as well. Uh, so, so I think, um, kind of, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, we're active, equally active in both the US and Norway, so we don't really have any, call it pre-conditions uh, on what we want to, where we want to do it. I, I think it completely depends on, on what position the company is in. Uh, and I think maybe it might be that the Oslo market is going to be more active. Definitely, I think there's going to be more. The first IPO is more likely going to be in Oslo than in, in the US market on the shipping side. That's uh, at least my opinion. But obviously, it depends on the market. Suddenly, you know, the market flips upside down and uh, it might look different. So.
0: All right, well, Do you have oh. a different view on the next IPO? Uh, <laughs>
1: I I hope that's not the case, but um, no, I mean, I think if I had to guess, I'd probably agree. I mean, I feel like the Norwegian market, I mean, it's like Greece, there is a certain shipping expertise in those countries that is not, uh, you know, kind of a a basic uh, instinct in the U.S., and so there's been a a lot of education, and as Krista said, there's tons of public companies, so there's a greater awareness, and that's good, Um, but Norwegian capital has been smart on tankers, smart on shipping in general, smart on offshore, so it's kind of like, it's almost like the early stage or the first round or two of capital with a view to, I'll look past the illiquidity because probably, or at least historically, these companies have ended up in New York or more liquid, deeper listing uh, venues and I'll, ab- I'll be able to sell then or maybe the company gets bought. I mean, that's kind of, you have to know how to get out eventually. Um, so that's kind of how it's worked. But to Herman's last comment, um, the answer to your ver- the first question you asked on this panel is like what changes things and it's when people make money um in the equities and so if if hedge fund managers in the US start making money on shipping stocks you'll see a, a great and quick deepening of that pool and that's really ultimately
0: what it'll catalyze the turnaround and that's i mean again we we also started though as you saw that a little bit but you didn't see that reflected in prices so is it just a just sort of a, a longer term earnings history is that what it takes or how are you going to get a differentiate how are you going to differentiate earnings from stock prices because that's probably where a lot of people would be frustrated over the last six months <laughs> <laughs> I, was it's an easy I, one.
1: I was hoping because her, her light was <laughs> on that she was going to answer um I wish I knew that I mean I think um my personal observations over over past years has been um As soon as someone starts making money, you know, others notice, right? And it can be it can doesn't have to take a long time. But if it's steep enough, people will notice. To your point, we haven't seen a sustained rally. I think if you see something that changes, whether it's, you know, last year it was a supply driven recovery and assume China will be about the same. Now we're in a totally different position where the demand piece of things is being threatened for those who relate uh, or, or rely on on China. Um, as soon as there's a fundamental thesis to invest, and it starts getting proven out in uh, investment gains, uh, and that lasts two months, you know it's a fertile ground. So it's to some extent the underlying businesses, but also you know the kind of the alpha-driven macro theses that these portfolio managers want exposure to playing out. And I think we've seen, you know, to use a sports analogy, we've seen a lot of head fakes about. Things being the recovery that's always been promised under a variety of different theses, that hasn't worked out, and so people are kind of gun shy. But if there's something that's a big enough macro, it seems to be uh, developing or playing out. You know, it will. You know, the contagion will set in.
2: To, to build on what Wiley was saying, I think that in our experience, public investors are would rather leave some money on the table in terms of value appreciation in equities to have proof that the trend is truly headed in an upward direction. So when do earnings strong earnings translate into strong equity growth? I think it's when that that trajectory has been established and investors feel that there's enough runway. It's not just a, you know, one month Thing, right for, for investors so and, and particularly in a very cyclical sector where investors have lost a lot of money, I would say there's just more caution in terms of that timing of coming in and making sure that it's not a, a head fake in terms of what Wiley said.
1: yeah and, and just you know the, the the ability to be able to you know, to sell your stock has been critical and I would say that's the biggest issue with small cap shipping companies as people say. This is a really attractive level. It's 50% of NAV or whatever, but it's just there's not, you can't get in and out in meaningful amounts, to, to, to Krista's very point. Like, it's gonna have to be significant appreciation to know that there's gonna be an illiquidity discount when you go to sell the stock as well at this point. But as caps get larger and it feeds upon itself, you'll start to see a more healthy dynamic. But right now it's, it's easy to, uh, it's, it's hard to buy, it's harder to sell, and that's a, that's a tough dynamic.
4: I think you need to have an improvement on, from on the macro situation. I mean, they, it's difficult to, uh, to, to try to sell stock when you have a trade tension overhang uh, and multiple events. If you look at Drybulk, for example, um, like the Brazilian incident, um, in, in go out in the market to sell a story, right? So you might have very good you know, fundamentals in the supply uh, situation being very promising in some sectors, extremely promising in some sectors, but still, it's uh, as in any asset class, it's not shipping. When you do have macro instability, in it's very difficult to sell an equity story, no matter what what the company
0: is at the same time. Last 21 seconds. Uh, I was just going to yeah. say, how often
3: do we have uh, stable macro conditions? I mean, uh, if you, I mean, it's been fairly volatile for at least the last decade, been. Uh, so I don't know. I, I uh, you need a
4: window sometimes. You don't need. Yeah, the, yeah, you sorry. don't need five years of stability, of course.
3: But it's it's a fantastic position we're in, though. I mean, even though it's annoying that we're not doing any deals, I mean, from a supply point of view, I mean, uh, we're losing thousand dollars in the front end of the curve, but we're gaining ten on the far end of the curve. So uh, this is uh, this is something that's going to solve itself out. Um, so that's
4: the hope, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: All right, well, the clock has started going backwards, so I think that means we are out of time. Um, thank thank you all very much.
1: I'm going to say one thing because I feel like we've, you know, in, or we are at the risk of depressing everybody in the room <laughs> about this. Um, to Herman's and, and George's last comments, I mean, this is a resilient industry. Um, there's, there was an oversupply of capital at one point. There's been an undersupply, much to our chagrin, um, recently, certainly of public market capital. Um, you know, the industry is going to find its way back, and investors will not be able to resist. Um, given the returns in the industry that we all know are coming, so this is a longer, um, you know, kind of cycle of modesty that we've all had to endure. But there's a reason that uh, City and Storm Harbor and uh, and and uh, Clarkson's and Morgan Stanley are still in the business and still have the the same faces up here. So we're committed to the industry, and um,
3: you know, there'll be there'll be more activity, and we look forward to working with you guys on that. I'd just like to add one more thing as well. Uh, I think we're, we'll look back to this point in time in history, uh, or in the future, and we'll think, "Wow, what an f- amazing time to invest into the shipping space." We got in at historically low levels. We've been through a very typical cycle. Uh, you know, if you go back to the history books and look at 1983, some cording 100 ships on the argument of fuel efficiency. Think about what happened in the eco debate in 2013. You know, this is a cyclical industry, and now we have a fantastic setup, where order books are record low, we have the IMO 2020 regulation coming as we get into the uh, 2020s, the ordering boom that was created as a consequence of China becoming a member of of VTI in 2001 is becoming 20 years of age. I think we have a fantastic period ahead of us and the irony is that even though the capital market isn't showing it, we're a year and a half into the recovery of this market if you look on overall second-hand prices build prices, sorry, I'm going to one more second. The number of ships being ordered the last three years across all uh, spaces, or all, all sectors of shipping. The last three years, the number of ships being ordered is the lowest number of ships being ordered the last 20 years. We also see prices moved up $10 million last year. And there was, there's been very low ordering activity. Imagine what's going to happen to the inflationary pressure on second-hand prices and build prices when for real you need to start ordering ships because... The early 2,000 ships are getting too old, and they're priced at scrap anyway. So you might as well scrap it and buy and call it a new ship. So um, I've I've never been more enthusiastic than I am now. And uh, the lower the prices go, the more enthusiastic I get. And uh, I wish the investors were the same way. Because yeah. one day should, they will yeah. wake
4: up. A good investor should understand that and buy, similar to how ship owners buy at dark times, yeah. not at bright times. This is how you ship owners usually make money out of buying and selling ships, not running ships. Uh, and most of the time so it's uh, it's not easy to uh, you know uh, mirror it, but that's that's the right way to go For sure.
0: Well, with that. I hope you're all sitting here a year from now, and you're all proven to be correct and remember the first risk factor I think in every single prospectus in any public shipping company deal is the shipping se- sector is the second, the second the second. Sector. So it's true. Thank you all. Thank you.